This is the second Sunday in Advent, which means that 50 years ago, I was in this weird state of eager expectation, which I felt as this continuous and torturous pain. I couldn't wait for Christmas. I couldn't wait to open my uh, presents. It was about 50 years ago that I wanted an electric race car track with the little electric race cars, you know. On Christmas morning, I got it. And then something absolutely horrid happened. This is how Tony Campolo describes the same experience in one of his books. I was overcome with joy. A sense of ecstasy surged through me. I loved everything. I loved everybody. The world became radiant and wonderful. A sense of aliveness permeated my consciousness. I stayed in my state of heightened awareness and sensitivity for almost three hours. Then something happened to the trains, the electric trains. They didn't break. Broken trains can be fixed. Something far worse than that happened to them. They became old. I remember that exact moment, about 3 p.m. <laughs> this is boring. <laughs> and then I began to long for the next Christmas. I began to want. I was wanting. I was a wanting seven-year-old consumer of Christmas. Now you may be thinking, of course, the work of human hands always gets old. What you need is the wonder of creation. And so that's what I did for my kids. I got them pets. Lots of pets. One night many years ago, Susan and I came home from a date. We walked into our house and all the lights were on. The hamster cage lay broken and open on the floor. No hamster, but a whole lot of hamster refuse and bedding all over the new carpet. It was chaos. And we heard my dad. We heard him upstairs, our 80-year-old babysitter, my dad, upstairs reading stories to our two youngest children, Becky and Coleman. He would explain to us what happened. The neighbor girl brought her turtle over to meet our turtle, uh, she was friends with uh, Elizabeth, we have four children, brought her turtle over to meet our turtle and, and then decided to bring her hamster over to visit our hamsters. In fact, the children had already done this and learned about the wonders of reproduction. So our neighbor's hamster had new babies, which were technically like my children's grandbabies. Dad told them not to hold the babies, but they held the babies. About that time, my son's gecko escaped from his cage, my older son, and the gecko could not be found. My son was distraught. I imagine that Roxanne, the dog, was barking, and then the, the mother hamster got so nervous that she began to kill her babies and do absolutely beastly things to her babies. The, the kids are so horrified at this that her daughter's friend, like, freaked out, went into a rage, ran up to our top deck, and chucked her hamster off of the top deck. Somehow, our hamsters escaped. Everyone was screaming and running around in a panic. Dad was on his oxygen, so he could not keep up, and he told them all to calm down. My son screamed, you don't understand our pain, and fell on the floor. There was open wailing and gnashing of teeth. All hell broke loose. And now my dad, he did not know where the older children were. He was reading Bible stories to our two youngest children. 
they were so distraught that they had come to him and begged him to read Bible stories and say their prayers. And this whole time, as my father explained the situation, he had a twinkle in his eye and he was laughing. <laughs> I was just pointing out how things get old and we long for the new. Toys get old, possessions get old, even creation gets old. Go camping and you'll discover this, it'll get old. Paul writes that God subjected creation to futility. To use scientific lingo, he subjected creation to entropy. It's actually the second law of thermodynamics. Without getting too technical here, it's the basic idea that in a closed system, uh, the state of that system will always move toward chaos. It's called entropy. Creation gets old, but even more, it gets old to us. My race car set would get old and, and break. But long before that, you see, it got old to me. And that would make some sense because I'm part of creation, subject to entropy. Things get old, and they get old to me. C.S. Lewis writes this about things. They are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. Maybe they were the thing, but were somehow emptied of the thing because we took them as things. We thought the life and the good was just a thing. Maybe all creation is like a vase of cut flowers. They look beautiful, but because we picked them, they're dead. And now we will watch them decay. And we don't just pick them with our hands, we pick them with our minds. So they don't just get old, they get old to us. We comprehend things. Or we think we comprehend things, so they lose their wonder and they get old to us. The good gets old to us. And the life dies. My dad got old. But long before he got old, he got old to me. He'd talk, and I'd think, yeah, 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 I heard that before. I love you, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> he got old to me, and I don't think I ever got old to him. And sometimes he had this capacity to laugh, even though all creation had descended into chaos. As if he was more than simply, simply part of this creation. As if he knew something the rest of us did not quite know yet. As if he were becoming forever young. In his book, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton talks about the way in which little children, much younger than seven, can rejoice in monotony. That's why they'll keep saying to you, do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again. Things don't get old to a little child. To them, all things are new. Chesterton writes, it is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making daisies. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old. 
and our father is younger than we. Our father's name is I Am. He is older than anyone, and yet he is younger than everyone. He is eternal. Well, I was just pointing out that the way, the way in which uh, the new gets old. So I got a race car set, and it got old. My kids got pets, and they got old. I went camping, and it got old. I pastored a church, and it got old. I made new friends, and they got old. I married a bride. <laughs> yeah, right now I'd like to make a different point. Okay, different point. I was, just, I was just pointing out the way in which the new gets old, and then we long for the new. But at some point, we do switch tactics. We get old, and we notice that the old is being replaced by the new. And so we begin to long for the old. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I actually miss the 70s. We had, if you're young, you just need to know, we had these incredible things in the 70s. They were called files. And you put them in these things called filing cabinets. And, and, and they could not and they would not be deleted. They could not and would not be deleted if you happened to for download some, some update on your co computer. Uh, they never got a virus. Uh, they could not get a virus and would not get a virus. We had these incredible things called filing cabinets, and you should have seen the phones. They were awesome. They were attached to the wall. So you could, never, you could never lose them, and they didn't harass you in your pocket wherever you went. I miss the files. I miss the phones. I miss... My dad. Now this may sound pathetic, but it's true. I can't tell you the number of times sitting at my desk feeling discouraged and alone that I've Googled Dan Ernest Hyatt. If you want to know something, that's what you do, right? That's what they say. I Google Dan Ernest Hyatt and I get nothing. Except maybe an old address, and I think to myself, what the hell is wrong with this world? Maybe I should be asking, what the hell is wrong with me? He used to get old to me because I wanted the new. Now I have the new, and I'm obsessed with the old. We're all like that. Progressives tend to become conservatives, and neither are happy. We all want to progress to the new, and then we all get concerned about conserving the old. But is there a moment between the two in which we're just happy? It's a little like taking a drink when you're really, really thirsty. You know, sometimes I'll take just like a super, super hot bath just to experience the intense pleasure of of drinking a cup of cold water. So in agony, what happens when you're thirsty? In agony, you long for the drink, longing to be filled and, and to satisfy your thirst. And then once you've taken the drink, you no longer thirst for the drink. It no longer sounds good. And that moment of sheer joy, the moment of actually drinking, is just so fleeting. Stay thirsty, my friend. You know that commercial? 
How can you stay thirsty and continuously experience the joy of drinking? I mean, I had my dad, and he got old, because I wanted the new. I got the new and lost my dad, and now I long for the old. And it doesn't do any good to try to hang on to the moments. If, if you try to hang on to the moment of drinking, what will you do? You'll bust your gut. Or you'll become an alcoholic. When my dad was dying, I tried to hang on to each moment. But then I found that I couldn't enjoy those moments or even experience those moments. Maybe sin is, is trying to take the good in every moment such that you can't experience the good in any moment. Take the good, like fruit from a tree. We long for the new, and we long for the old, and we rarely live now. I used to long for a new house, and now I miss my old home. But it's only in the now that a house becomes a home. Sometimes I drive by the, the house where I grew up in, in Littleton. It's not that far from me. Someone had the audacity to paint it a different color and change all the landscaping. I sit outside and I think to myself, Peter, you can never go home. You will never play with your electric trains in your room on Christmas morning ever again. You can never go home. Dad will never work in that garden while you dig a hole in the backyard for your fort and Lydia and Rachel play with the rabbit and Mom makes fried mushroom sandwiches in your kitchen with the mustard yellow countertops and the avocado green refrigerator. Peter, you can never go home. You know that phrase, right? You can never go home again. I'm sure that's what they were thinking in Asia Minor along about the time that John sent them this revelation. The folks in the seven churches were largely the diaspora. That means they were dispersed uh, Jews, and those that weren't ethnic Jews believed that they were grafted into the amazing family tree of Israel. So Jerusalem was their home, even though most of them had never been there. See, you may never actually experience one moment of being at home in this world, and yet we all long for home. Jerusalem was much more than just a city. It was home. It was the location of, of Eden. That's what many Orthodox Jews still believe today, the location of Eden. It was Abraham and Isaac. It was Mount, Mount Moriah, Mount Calvary, and Mount Zion all in one. It was King David and his son, the Prince of Peace. It was the hopes and fears of all the years. It was the tabernacle that became the stone temple. It was the throne of God in the heart of the promised land. It was home. It was 2,000 years of human sweat, blood, and labor. Or so they thought. 2,000 years, and in 70 A.D., the Romans utterly destroyed it, along with 1.1 million Jews, and then literally plowed it into the ground. Emperor Hadrian even passed a law that if any Jew appeared within sight of the city, he, he was to be slain, slain, even on the spot. They literally could not go home. Some date the revelation to a time immediately before the destruction of Jerusalem, in which case it would have served as preparation for what these dispersed Jews, the household of Israel, was about to experience. 
Some date the revelation to a time immediately after the destruction of Jerusalem, but either way, the folks in the seven churches must have been thinking to themselves, you can never go home. The new becomes old, and the old is replaced by the new, and we rarely live now. I remember the day I watched my bride come down the aisle dressed in the most beautiful wedding gown. I was afraid. I was afraid that the old was being replaced by the new. And I was afraid that the new might become old. I remember thinking to myself as she was coming down the aisle, stop it, stop it, stop it, live now. If I don't live now, I'll miss my bride coming down the aisle. My house will never be a home. And one day she just might say to me, depart from me, for I never knew you. You can only know and be known by a person now. Now is when and where we live. Now is when and where a house becomes a home, and yet we rarely live now. Worried that the old will be replaced by the new, or worried that the new will become the old. We seem to have a problem with time. We are so little reconciled to time, writes C.S. Lewis, that we are even astonished at it. How he's grown, we exclaim. How time flies as though the universal form of our experience were again and again a novelty. It is as strange as if a fish were repeatedly surprised at the wetness of water. And that would be strange indeed, unless, of course, the fish were destined to one day walk on land, become a new creature. We seem to have a problem with time. Physicists have a problem with time. They can't figure out what it is, or why it is, or why it seems that we can only move in one direction. It only moves in one direction. You know, most all of their equations work forward and backwards in time. Physicists say that all we really know about time is that it's the way we measure or experience entropy. That is, we really only know that we're moving forward in time because Chaos increases. Things decay. In other words, everything dies. It seems more than a little significant to me that on the sixth day of creation, in a paradise garden that seemed to have been like a little slice of eternity in a temporal world, on a spot which would one day become uh, the temple, within which was an inner sanctuary that was said to be a piece of the age to come, a piece of eternity, in, in that garden which contained a tree, like the tree on which the Lord of the Sabbath died, uh, the, the Lord of the promised rest died, in that garden God said, Adam, the day you eat of it, dying you will die. The day you take knowledge of the good, you will begin to experience entropy. It is the beginning, and you will begin to experience time. 
chronological time. In other words, the new will become old and the old will replace the new and you will long to live now, but you will find the now to be incredibly elusive. You will actually run from the now, even though you long for the now. You will run from I am and experience this incredible thirst for I am in you. So what is it that we all want? And what is it that maybe we all fear? What is it that we all thirst for? I think each of us thirsts for the eternal now. We each want the old to be forever new. We want to be forever young. We all long for home. And yet we really don't know what it is. We have a problem with time and we all thirst for eternity. It's interesting that according to physicists, light does not experience time. That is chronological time. <laughs> but how would we ever know that? Has anyone ever had a conversation with light? The light. Well, actually, Revelation 1, the light of the world appears to John, shining like the sun, and says, Hey, John, I'd like to show you some stuff from my perspective. John hears all creation and every creature worshiping God. John watches Jesus unwrap the meaning of space-time as he unwraps the seven-sealed scroll in the strong right hand of God. At the seventh bowl, seventh trumpet, seven-sealed, John hears a voice cry from the throne, It is done! Just as Jesus cried from the tree, it is finished. All sorts of stuff happens all at once, and then we read this, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Yet Isaiah prophesies a new sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Maybe, maybe, maybe you can go home. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Chapter 19, we read that the bride is adorned with the righteous deeds of the saints. These righteous deeds come down from heaven like good works prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. People make cities, people make cities, but we'll see that this city is made by God with people. It's like the entire time that the Jews were constructing the old Jerusalem in fear and shame, God was constructing the new Jerusalem with them. They think they're building a city, and they are the city being built. <laughs> you are the city being built. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Look, behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell, tabernacle. He'll camp with them, and they shall be his people. Now that's, that's amazing. The loud voice says that the dwelling place of God is with men, not will be, is. He will dwell with them, says the voice, but first it says he already is. And he doesn't simply say dwell, he says tabernacle from skenao. He, he will tent with them in his tent. 
It's clearly a reference to the tabernacle, the tent that God had Moses build for the Israelites' journey through the wilderness uh, on their way to the, the promised land, their home. That they thought was some real estate on the other side of the Jordan River. But now Jesus is revealing that their home is in that tent with God. Get the picture? As they journeyed to the promised land, the promised land was with them the whole flipping time. Their home was in God's tent, but they could not go behind the curtain in the tent. They could not enter, for to enter was to die. Well, all Israel journeyed to, to the, to the, as Israel journeyed to the promised land, see, the promised land journeyed with them. For the sanctuary, the garden, their true home, was in the temple of their own hearts. As we preached a, a few weeks ago, they were not at home in themselves. And we are not at home in ourselves. They were not at home with God, but God was at home in them. When Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, perhaps Eden went with them in the sanctuary of their souls. They were cast out by I am, and they hid from I am, and yet I am was hiding in them, whispering to them from behind the curtain. They were terrified of the light, and yet they longed for the light because the light was, the eternal light was hiding in them. Where? Behind the curtain. Solomon wrote, God has put eternity in our hearts, yet so that we cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end, beginning to end. The inner room behind the curtain was thought to be eternal. That's beginning and end. When Jesus died, his flesh was torn, and that curtain ripped from the top to the bottom. Luke 17, Jesus said this. Listen closely, you students of the Revelation. The kingdom of God does not come with observations. Did you get that? Some translate it this way. The kingdom of God does not come with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, see, here it is, or see, there it is. See, here, or see, there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. So make no mistake. Chronos, chronological time, will come to, a, to an end. And your time will come to an end. And you will see the Son of, Son of Man, Son of God, coming on the clouds of heaven with glory within one generation. But the kingdom of God will rise from within you like a fountain of living water. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well? The water that I will give will become in you a spring of water to eternal life. In the next chapter, John will see the river of life. It flows from the throne. That's the throne that's in the tabernacle, which is the temple, which is us. Verse 3. Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, is with men, and he will dwell. Tabernacle, camp with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no more, there'll be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Look, behold, I make all things new. And he said, Write this down, because these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts.
I love how Mel Gibson did that in his movie, because I think that's exactly what John saw on Good Friday, and what he's seeing in Revelation chapter 21. Enthroned on the tree in the garden at the end of the sixth day, which is the end of the ages, the edge of eternity, Jesus Christ, it is finished. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the plot. When you read a book and you get to the end, you learn the plot. And it transforms the meaning of every page in the book. It transforms the meaning of every moment in the story. He is the beginning and the end, and according to Scripture, He doesn't change. That's eternal. He is the beginning and the end, and according to, to Scripture, Hebrews 13, He doesn't change. He is an indestructible life. That's Hebrews 7. We think He changes! But he must not change. We change relative to him. He experiences no entropy except that which he experiences in his temples of flesh, which is us. He is the beginning and the end, and he does not change, just like Yahweh, because he is Yahweh. He is eternal. He is eternal, and you are his body rising from the dead, born out of a tomb, a tomb that is also a womb, the womb of space and time. Revelation 13, 5. Look, I make all things new. Verse 6. It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. God says that right at the start of the Revelation, chapter 1, verse 8. And Jesus says it at the end, 22, 13. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. So maybe they're both talking now from the throne. Scholars can't figure this out. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely. Freely. He is free will. His will is free. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. Son, singular, not plural. And check this out. The one who thirsts is the one who overcomes. Put it all together and that means faith is something like a thirst. On the tree, the son of God said, I thirst." What does he thirst for? Communion with you. Do you thirst for communion with him? You know who he is? He's the manifest presence of I am. Verse 7, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son, singular, not plural. But the cowardly, and now God uses the plural, not the singular, the, the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, the pornos, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Notice that all these things, fear, faithlessness, lovelessness, murderous, prostitution, addiction, and lies, they're all things that divide one from another. And as we preach, death is division, and love binds everything together. Death is separation, and life is 
communion. Death is temporal, and the death of death is the edge of eternity. The death of death is separation from separation, right? If death is separation, the death of death would be separation from separation, which must be an eternal communion of life, eternal life. Verse 8, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Theon, theon, divinity or divine being. Divinity is truth, light, life, and love. All liars will meet their end in a lake of eternal truth. All who hate the light will meet their end in a lake of eternal light. All murderers will meet their end in the lake of eternal life. All whores and whoremongers will meet their end in the sea of eternal love. Absolutely free love. Love that you could never ever pay for and love that you must stop trying to pay for. Verse 8, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and theon, which is the second death. And at this point, some people say, see, 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 he doesn't make all things new. As if their judgment of what's possible undoes the abundantly clear judgment of God spoken from the throne. They say, see, 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 he doesn't make all things new as if something reduced to dust by a fire cannot be made new by God. For, for God can't just like make stuff out of dust, can he? They say, see, he doesn't make all things new. But maybe that's exactly how he makes all things new. Indeed, his temple, which is us, is predestined to be refined by fire and then filled with fire. Holy fire. God is that fire. And he is the end. They say, okay, great. Well, <laughs> does God make evil new? Listen closely. God makes all things new. But evil is not a thing. It's the absence of a thing. Scripture is abundantly clear on this. God creates all things. And all that God creates is good. Evil is the absence of the good. Which means it's no thing. It's nothing but a void. To make a void new, God fills it with I am. So if God makes lies new, what do we call it? We call it truth. And it comes as grace or, or forgiveness even if it flows out of us. Grace and forgiveness. If God makes darkness new, we call it light. And the process is called revelation or uh, maybe enlightenment. If God makes death new, we call it life. And we witness a resurrection. If God makes love, love that's been sold, abused, used, and nailed to a tree, if he makes that love new, we call him Jesus. Jesus said to him who is thirsty, I will give the water of life without payment. So are you thirsty for grace, for light, for abundant and eternal life? If so, you see, you're thirsty for communion with Jesus in the temple of your own soul. In other words, you're homesick. You know, the fire of tribulation makes us thirsty, doesn't it? 
The fire of tribulation makes us thirsty for the water of life. And in the end, you'll see that it was all grace, both the water and the fire, like a sea of glass mingled with, with, with fire. It's all the judgment of God drawing us to himself, just as he said he would in John chapter 12. And some might say, well, okay, okay, okay. If he makes all new, they don't stay new. For after he makes all new, he throws some into the lake of fire. We'll read it again. It doesn't say after. He may see after, but it doesn't say it happened after. The revelation is not a chronology. It's a theology. And the boundary between the city and the outer darkness is the boundary between eternity and time. And once you're filled with eternal fire, you can't be burned by the eternal fire. Eternal life cannot die. To have eternal life is to be forever new. It is to be as old as time and as young as now. It's to be forever young. I suspect it means you're no longer bound by time, but you can travel through time in every direction. You can travel through time. You can't conceive of that now, but you dream of that now. That's why you liked all the Back to the Future movies, right? You liked them. And then you thought, well, how do you, and your brain got all twisted into knots. That's why you say how he's grown, how time flies, why it seems like only yesterday. If only I knew then what I knew now. If only then was now. That's what you say. You dream of it now, and maybe you even experience it now just a bit. Whenever you forgive, that changes the meaning of your past. Whenever you hope, that changes the meaning of the future, and it frees you to live now where history is made, where his story is made. Wherever and whenever you commune with I am, that moment changes all moments, and moments in your past, present, and future become new. They become new because you know the plot. Or maybe I should say, uh, the plot knows you on every page. He abides with you on every page of your story. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is is in Christ. He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, look, all things have become new. Fully in Christ, which means Christ fully in you, means that you'll never grow tired of electric trains and race car tracks and hamsters and turtles and, and dogs and, 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 and people. For everything will be filled with I am that I am who is the beginning and the end and always now such that he never gets old and is always new. In other words, you can go home. In fact, you are most truly at home even now. You just don't know it. You're like a child dreaming a dream on her father's lap or his father's lap. You're dreaming a dream of your own sovereignty, but even now your father is waking you from your nightmare. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you will be changed. The perishable will put on the imperishable, and you will be changed. He makes all things new, even now. He is now. And now you must be thinking to yourself, man, 
St. Paul was smoking crack. And maybe John, you know, he just drank a little bit too much of that communion wine on Sunday afternoon on the island of Patmos, and maybe Peter drank it too. Let's review real quickly what we've learned. In Scripture, chronological time looks something like this. At the cross, eternity invaded time. And whenever we come to the cross, we come to the end of the ages. The tree in the garden on which we took life, God's life and on which God gave his life is the boundary of space-time and eternity. Our time exists in eternity as if the kingdom of God were actually at hand. So the timeline reminded us of the seven-sealed scroll in the strong right hand of God. The strong arm of God, whom Isaiah reveals, is Jesus. The scroll is all creation, and that reminded us of this picture from NASA, a picture of the cosmos, this picture of all things. God makes all things new, and he makes all things new by filling all things with himself. That's what scripture tells us. He is truth, light, life, and love. He is I am, and he is eternal fire. We each have an old man that we think we made with our judgments, but God gives us a new man that he has made with his judgment. A Christian is both. I think probably every person is both. But the moment I see Christ and so surrender to the judgment of God, the curtain in the temple that is me rips from the top to the bottom, and the Spirit of God begins to fill the old me with the forever new me, which uh, burns away the old me and fills the old me with the new me. Christ in me, Jesus, Yahashua, meaning I am is salvation. I am doesn't just save one moment of me. He saves every moment of me. In other words, he doesn't just save me in three dimensions. He saves me in at least four. The first three dimensions can be described with these words. Length, width, and depth. What word can we assign to the fourth dimension? One answer would be duration. If we think of ourselves as we were one minute ago, and then imagine ourselves as we are at this moment, the line we could draw from the one minute ago version to the right now version would be a line in the fourth dimension. If you were to see your body in the fourth dimension, you'd be like a long undulating snake with your embryonic self at one end and your deceased self at the other. But because we live from moment to moment in the third dimension, we're like our second dimensional flatlanders. Just like that flatlander who could only see two dimensional cross sections of objects from the dimension above, we, as three dimensional creatures, can only see three dimensional cross sections of our fourth dimensional self. Right now, God sees all of me and he has saved all of me. He has saved all of me, and he loves all of me. He's madly in love with all of me. He really likes me. I see maybe what? Half of me. If I live to 114, <laughs> did the math. Or maybe two-thirds of me if I make it to 86. I see two-thirds of me, and most of that is probably an empty void that I have created with my illusion of control, my ego, my pride, my sin. It is what I am not. But God does not see two-thirds of an empty me. He sees all of me, filled with himself, which is who I am. Where sin increased, grace abounded 
all the more. In the void which I create with my judgments, God pours his eternal judgment, and it's solid gold. Eternal and indestructible. When and where I was faithless, he makes me eternally faithful with himself. In the very place that I was not his people, there I am revealed to be a son of God. And even the son of God, I mean like the body of the son of God. In fact, in my worst moments, there he reveals his greatest glory. All my worst moments are moments in which I take his life on the tree, and they are the very same moments in which he gives his life on the tree and makes me good. It's like Jesus said to Julian of Norwich. Since I have turned the greatest possible harm into good, it is my will that you should know from this that I shall turn all lesser evil into good. See, he fills all things with himself. He fills all things with himself, and he fills all of me with himself. So no matter where and when I go, I'm at home with my Father, for my Father has made his home in me. All of me, and not just me, all of him, the fullness of him, flows through me and through all uh, humanity, like a, a river of life. He is the life, and we are his body. In him, which is also him in me, the river of life, I lose my life and constantly find it. In other words, I drink the water of life. And I am constantly filled with the water of life, even as I bleed the water of life into my neighbor. The thirsting and the drinking and the being filled are forever now and forever one and forever new and I am forever young and everywhere and every win is home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. No... Wake up, honey. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Dorothy, Dorothy, dear. It's Aunt Em, darling. Oh, Annie Em, it's you. Yes, darling. Hello there. Anybody home? I, uh, I just dropped by because I heard the little girl got caught in the big... Well, she seems all right now. Yeah, she got quite a bump on the head. We kind of thought there for a minute she was going to leave us. Oh. But I did leave you, Uncle Henry. That's just the trouble. And I tried to get back for days and days. There, there, lie quiet now. You just had a bad dream. Sure. Remember me? Your old pal, Hunk? Oh. <laughs> me? <laughs> Hickley? You couldn't forget my face, could you? But it wasn't a dream. It was a place, and you, and you, and you, and you were there. Oh, <laughs> But you couldn't have been, could you? Well, we dream lots of silly things when we... No, Em. This was a real, truly live place. And I remember that some of it wasn't very nice, but most of it was beautiful. But just the same, all I kept saying to everybody was, I want to go home. And they sent me home. <laughs> Doesn't anybody believe me? Of course we believe you, Dorothy. Oh, but anyway, Toto, we're home. Home. And this is my room. And you're all here. And I'm not going to leave here ever, ever again. Because I love you all. And... Oh, Annie M. 
place like home. See, I think scripture is saying that each of us has run away from home. And we've been trying to get back for days and days, for eons and eons. We each ran away from the garden and began to dream our own dreams. But God in Christ Jesus is bringing us home and waking us from our dreams. And when he does, everything will be new. For we will know something we did not know before. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. I'm just saying that God is your home and all things with him. He really makes all things new. Sometimes people will say to me, okay, Peter, why does it matter? And I just, I just wanna freak out. I mean, I really struggle with that. Why does it matter? If you knew a person that could make all things new, wouldn't you do everything you could to take everything and every moment and every person to that person? If you knew God makes all things new and that means God makes all moments new, wouldn't you have courage to live now? If you knew that God made all things new, wouldn't you have hope for all things and love all people and faith for every moment? Uh, wouldn't you bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things? If you knew that God made all things new and all things were your home, wouldn't you let him make all things new? In other words, wouldn't you forgive all things, all people, everywhere, every when? Wouldn't you forgive as you've been forgiven in the very image of God? If you knew that God made all things new, wouldn't you come to his table and bring all things and every moment with you? And so he took the bread, his flesh, and broke it, saying, this is my body, ripped, broken for you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, he took the cup and said, this is the covenant, the eternal covenant, in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins, Drink of it, all of you. So, how's it going <laughs> on this journey of yours? Have you become thirsty yet? Thirsty? For what? Home. Because you see, this is the way, actually the only way, but the way has a surprising ability to show up in the strangest places. This is the way 